You're listening to Conversations on Strategy. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and are not necessarily those of the Department of the Army, the U.S. Army War College, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Conversations on Strategy welcomes Dr. Alessandro Lazari, co-author of Comparing Policy Frameworks, CISR in the United States and the European Union. Lazari's been working as a specialist in critical infrastructure protection, resilience, and cybersecurity since 2004. He's currently a senior key account manager at 24HG, focused on incident and crisis management in Europe. Alessandro, welcome to Conversations on Strategy. I'm glad you're here. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me over. It's a pleasure to be here. You recently contributed to the book, Enabling NATO's Collective Defense, Critical Infrastructure, Security, and Resiliency. The chapter you worked on compares policy frameworks of critical infrastructure, security, and resiliency in the U.S. and the EU. The U.S. CISR framework, what do we need to know? I mean, thanks for asking about this. This has been part of my PhD studies to go deep between the lines of everything that the U.S. has built in the past decades. And I have to say that this is really considerable. If you think that the PPD 63, just to give an example, presidential directive signed by Clinton in May 98, still stands as one of the brightest examples of CSR policies worldwide. If you look at it nowadays, after so many years, you see how very well defined the problem, how very well defined the mechanism to tackle it and to you know deal with it and to improve the overall posture of US against the threat of you know any potential attack to national critical infrastructure. I mean there is many examples in in the US policies of things that really worked. I can tell that they constitute a milestone to which many, many countries are looking at because of the comprehensiveness, because I can tell also that due to its particular system U.S. has experienced a wide range of events that span across all the potential threats of creating infrastructure and the fact that it's 50 states, you know, the federal system. So they really wanted to organize something that is really very, very big. And last but not least, the U.S. has also considered experience in maintaining the infrastructure. One of the greatest examples is the renovation that the U.S. government did in the old railroad, you know, riverways in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Is one also a considerable milestone of the experience in the U.S. So it's very much worth looking at it because there is many countries that are now in the condition of tackling those challenges nowadays. So really, throughout the entire lifespan, you know, a lot of things that are really you know, in use nowadays that really can provide example to the way the countries should deal with CSER nowadays. Let's go into a little bit more detail. What currently guides the U.S. CISR policy? One of the latest milestones in in the U.S. CSER policy is a PPD-21 signed by Barack Obama in 2013. I mean, that can be considered one of the examples of the maturity of the policy in the U.S., you know, enhancing all the functional relationship among the various stakeholders involved in the life cycle of critical infrastructure, security, and resilience. There are so many from both public and private side. From the public side, you have DHS and all the departments that are involved, all the agencies, and from the other side, all the operators and the critical nodes within the country and so on and so forth. So there is a considerable amount of stakeholders that need to talk to each other to be really aligned to do better. And here we come to the second pillar, that is information sharing. 
once you have identified all the functional relationship nodes, you absolutely need to cut short the distance between them. So they need to become closer and closer because they need to talk to each other. And in a country like US, it's, it's very difficult because it's a very big country with a big number of stakeholders involved. So for sure, this is also a challenge. And last but not least, after you have enabled, you know, the recognition of the functional relationship and the improvement of the information sharing, you then need to enable one very important pillar that is always mentioned, the PPD21, that is analysis of incident threats and emerging risk. Because you do not only deal with today, you also deal with the future. So you need to understand what, how, you know, uh, risks are evolving. So the emerging one. And you need to analyze all the incidents and threats constantly because the threats evolve as much as the society, because, you know, we have new enemies, new ways to attack the systems, and history evolves, we all know that. So once you have put together really this critical mass of activities and knowledge, you can say you are really structuring well your policy on, on CSER. Tell me about the EU framework, the European Program for Critical Infrastructure Protection. The EU it's based on the membership of the member states that are part of the EU. There were 28, and after the Brexit, now it's 27. You know, every time the negotiation of each steps of the policy is something that really seeks for the involvement of them all. On proposal from the European Commission that is normally proposing new piece of policy and regulation in this field. But this entails every time that member states are involved because they have a stake, they take a joint decision. But the European Program for Critical Infrastructure Protection is really the very first milestone. As much as it is for PPD 63 in the case of US, is really the very first piece of joint policy on critical infrastructure protection on the European side. And this really comes immediately after 9-11 and the attacks to you know London and Madrid in 2004-2005. It really starts from an all-hazard approach with a clear intent of fighting against terrorism. So financing on terrorism, all aspects of dealing with terrorism and the impact on terrorism, terrorism on critical infrastructure. Then immediately the union recognized within the program that the all-hazard approach really needs to be developed because it's not only terrorism that can threaten the continuity you know, and the existence itself of critical infrastructure, but there is many other threats that can really disrupt or create issues. So the European program has really put together the member states for the first time ever in discussing the critical infrastructure protection. This is still nowadays mainly dealt at national level, the first and unique competency. It still relies on, on the member states that are part of the EU, but the program has really the 27 in the condition to discuss together all the challenges, all the state of play of each one of them. So to set new goals that are not over ambitious for some of them, because you have to imagine when in 2008, the European program was launched, there were five or six member states that really had national framework for critical infrastructure protection and many others that didn't have one or, you know, they really needed to amend it heavily because it was obsolete or not taking care of all aspects. It can be said that the European program has really created that first spark that has enabled the EU to be in the state of play it is nowadays. Because for the first time, it has really asked the member states to discuss national security outside of their own border, but in a joint, coordinated manner. So there were some significant changes to the program in 2016 and 2020. I would love to hear about them. After a very long journey between 2008 and 2016, the union in um, 2016 
has decided to move a little bit the focus not only on the critical physical aspect of critical infrastructure, but also on the cyber dimension. Of course, member states were already dealing with that, but the real pro of the EU is that there is an harmonization effort going on. In 2016, we have the promulgation of the so-called Network Information Security Directive. This really adds an important layer you know, on top of the CSER policy, which is very focused on the cybersecurity or what we call operator of essential service. This new term that is different from critical infrastructure has been introduced to identify with all of those services that are delivered through the mean of network and information system. So really to narrow down the focus on the cyber dimension, of course, completely integrated together with the physical aspect because these are absolutely complementary. You cannot deal with one or just the other. You need to deal with all of them. And it is very important to notice that even though this first NIS Network Information Security Directive was promulgated back in 2020, on the 16th of December 2020, the European Commission proposed already an amendment of this directive to launch the second directive, the so-called NIS 2.0. You can see that here the policy life cycle has really shortened because normally there is a very long policy cycle between one policy and another. You have an average of eight to nine years, even 10 sometimes. Here you see that between 2016 and 2020, you have the promulgation of the first directive already in 2020, the proposal. And it's very likely that early 2023, this will enter into force, partially substituting the first one, but adding a lot more efforts, a lot more sectors. They go from 19 to 35, so there is a huge recognition, you know, improvement in terms of sector. There is also the intent to differentiate between operator of essential service and important service. So to create also a sort of criticality assessment between the two list of designated operators. So I think this is very important. There is also the announcement of the cooperation among the countries, the announcement of the functioning of the EU computer security incident response team. So better sharing of information regarding the incident and so on and so forth. Last but not least, also, I can tell that the 16th of December 2020 can be remembered as one of the really landmark of the EU CSER, because on the very same day, apart from the proposal on the NIS2 directive, the same European Commission, sending a very strong message, published the proposal also for, for the so-called Critical Entity Resilience Directive. Also here, you see a new terminology, critical entity resilience, because it's very far from critical infrastructure protection. So not only we move, like the focus is really on resilience, so being able to withstand, to bounce back after something has gone wrong, but also the commission introduced the term entity. This is also a clear message that the type of infrastructure that we can designate is not only old style, like we only open private operator, but entity has been used also to identify offices, department of the public administration and the government that are really pivotal for the functioning member states and the EU institution and so on and so forth. So you see that we move from operator to entities and from protection to resilience. So I think this really be remembered one of the days in which really the union has recalled the importance of the complementarity of the physical and cyber protection and resilience and the importance also of the states and the public administration and the governments in securing national security, EU security and international security. Because of course, this go beyond that. Going forward, what does critical infrastructure security and resilience look like for the U.S. and the EU? Even though we have this really great example of the European Program for Critical Infrastructure Protection, the PPD-63, all the executive orders, you know, every one of them in the U.S. are very comprehensive in you know, tackling the problem in the way it should be tackled and 
with all the effects that they have on the European Union, on the allied countries in NATO and so on and so forth. I think that there is some things that, on which we, we really need to improve. One of these is hybrid threats, because we often talk about physical and cybersecurity, but we do not consider the hybrid threats that are all these actions below the threshold of warfare that are still to the entity or to the state or to the operator that is targeted. There is no clarity, which is who's behind this action, if these actions are also coordinated. So there could be a state or no state actor that has decided to put under pressure certain systems, certain layers of our modern society. And it can be done with a combination of conventional and unconventional type of plot. And this is for sure one of the hot topic. The European Union has already recognized the importance of hybrid trades in 2016 and in 2020. There is two specific documents that have been released on the point. They are working hard in creating a framework for governments and public administration to try and recognize some key indicators that there is hybrid threats, that you are subject to hybrid threats, because you have to, to imagine that is extremely complex type of environment. It's a number of events that are not correlated because they're happening here and there. Therefore, you don't have control on all of them, and therefore you cannot really see through the fog what's going on. You just see the vertical events, but you don't see the horizontal plot. Social tension, fake news, propaganda, they are all part of this big element. Another thing that I think it's part of the hybrid threat, but it's not properly dealt everywhere, is the no financial side. We know that all these operators of critical infrastructure, the way you want to call them, or critical entities or operators of essential service, they are companies. They may be on regulated market, on the stock exchange, so on and so forth. Therefore, someone may acquire them, part of them, part of the ownership. To me, the way we scrutinize certain operation on national critical infrastructure is not yet clear because certain strategic infrastructure should remain of national property. I don't mean that it should be public. I mean that you should have national shareholder with minimum shareholder from abroad because they are strategic infrastructure on which, first of all, speculation shouldn't take place. But also you have to imagine that once you see someone in the, you know, in the board of directors, everything is discussed there immediately goes elsewhere as soon as the meeting is over. This shouldn't really happen. And this is not only happening at the scrutiny, it's already taking place for big infrastructure. For example, Italy has procedure for that. It's very advanced. But the, the way that the law is tuned on very big operation leave every small operation outside. Here we fall into another problem, third parties. It's not only about critical infrastructure. Critical infrastructure rely on a constellation of third parties. Sometimes they are also very small company. They are very important in the supply chain. We don't know who owns them. There is a little bit of scrutiny the company does on those other companies, third parties, but it's not enough. So the vetting procedure, the scrutiny procedure, they should really improve because we need to be sure that we are relying on the right people, that when something is going wrong, will help us out of the mud instead of leaving us in there. To identify friend or foe, as the, the military would say. So this is, to me, among the hybrid threats, the financial aspect, also the financial of third parties, so or trustworthiness of the third party, third party risk assessment, to me, it's fundamental. Do you have any final thoughts before we go? One last thing that is taking place anyway, because of our footprint on planet Earth, is climate change. To me, we need to work on the sustainability of critical infrastructure, and we need to do climate change risk assessments. 
this is something that already the critical entity resilience directive will ask to critical entity that will be designated under this directive in the future to do. So to assess what is the impact of climate change on critical infrastructure, you have to imagine that the weather, among other things, is considerably changing. 15 years ago, no one could hear about, you know, Medicaid, that is the, this Mediterranean hurricane, for example, in the Mediterranean. I come from the south of Italy, I've never heard about, we never heard the hurricane. All of a sudden, in the last five years, we have initial glimpses of what it could look like hurricanes. Of course, the proper hurricane, the one that you are experiencing in the US, you know, are much, much different and their force of devastation is much higher. But still, I can tell that these Medicaid are already threatening our critical infrastructure because they have not been designed to withstand this type of event, even though some of those are designed for withstanding certain type very severe weather events, they can be still disrupted. But ours are not designed at all. So you can imagine the impact of if these hurricanes keep coming and they keep increasing in their strength, the way they we see them behave in other countries that are severely hit by hurricanes, this could really pose a threat to our critical infrastructure. So for sure, the climate change has to be assessed. We will find ourselves with operators that have been used like to operate in extreme cold, having heat wave, and the other way around. Operators used to work in extreme hot, having cold wave, and therefore the reliabilities of this infrastructure may change, may be really threatened because they are not designed to operate in different conditions or in very severe, like the warm or cold. So yeah, that's another thing that I would definitely take into account and will challenge creating infrastructure in the future. Thank you for your time. Thanks for your contribution. This was a real treat to talk with you. Thank you very much indeed once again for inviting and uh, all the best. To learn more about the CISR frameworks of the United States and the European Union at press.armywarcollege.edu slash monographs slash 955. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, you can find us on any major podcast platform.